This morning, I'm going to tell you the tale of three houses. If you've never heard it before, because I'm making it up. House number one. It was the house of a widow, and as I entered, it was pretty clear that she was used to living by herself. Uh, as I entered, the, the little kitchen table there was stacked up with all sorts of medicine and books and other knickknacks there. And there was a spot about maybe two feet by two feet at the table that you could tell was clearly cleared out for one person. There were three chairs around the table, two of which had become storage areas and were all full of stuff and just the one empty chair where she could sit. So she got up and invited me to join her in the living room and walked in the living room and there was two pieces of furniture. There was a couch and there was a recliner. And guess what? The recliner was all clear, but the couch was a temporary storage unit where as she'd walked by, you could tell things were dropped, things were dropped. And it became pretty clear that there was nowhere for me to sit. House number two. I entered house number two and it was a huge, massive house. It was probably 10 times bigger than the house that I grew up in. It had a, a pool in it and a pool house and it had an arcade room and it had a pool room and it had a theater. And when I arrived, the, the, the hostess wanted to show me around and we went to room after room. And in this room, she would show me that oak dresser and tell me a big long story about who used to own it and where it came from. And we'd go into another room and would show me the china and would say all sorts of names that I think were supposed to impress me, but I didn't even know any of those brand names or any of that sort of thing. And it became pretty clear as the tour continued, the tour wasn't for me. The tour was for her to show off all of the things that she had in her house. House number three. Um, house number three is not an actual specific house. It's an experience I've had in multiple houses. You ever stand at the door and as you're at the door, you're feeling a little bit nervous or anxious because you're like, I don't really even know these people very well. And I'm either here to spend the night or I'm here for a meal. But as soon as you enter the door, you're warmly welcomed, you're greeted, you're given a place to sit down, and the conversation you can tell these people really do care about you. I think those three houses for me represent the, these, these aspects or these elements in our lives when it comes to pride or to humility or to self-esteem. Each of these houses, we are reminded that pride is a preoccupation with self that gets in the way of attending to God and others. And, and that first house, some of us have houses that it's pretty clear our, our emotional and our spiritual life is just set up. That as long as we have a space for ourselves, that's all we care about. As long as there's room for me to do what I want to do, why should I care about what other people might see or experience in my house? For others of us, we recognize as we've explored self-esteem, we gave it the same definition, a preoccupation with self that gets in the way of attending to God and others. There are some people who you can tell their self-esteem is so low, they're trying to do something, anything just to impress you. Something to make you think, wow, you really are important or you really are special or you really are significant. And at the end of the day, none of those things really matter to you and maybe they don't even matter to them. And then there are those houses where, where humility is the ability to offer a selfless and hospitable place for others. Humility is a preoccupation with God's will that motivates you to have a high regard for others. And of course, as we look at these three houses, we're not talking about literal space, are we? But we're talking about what it is like to be in the presence of people who are truly humble, who give you a sense that what's important to you matters to them. 
that give you a sense that, that, that you are being welcomed into the conversation. They are creating a space in their soul for you. And so what humility really does require is the ability to predict, predict and anticipate and think about the needs, the wants, and the desires of other people. Humility then becomes a community gift and not just an individual attribute. This morning, I want us to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 5 two. And, and as we go through this, we're not going to see the word humility mentioned, but I think humility undergirds all of Paul's instructions here. In fact, humility has to be a prerequisite to do the things that Paul's going to ask of the church here. So it begins in Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Paul is talking very generally about an old life and about a new life. And in case there's anybody there wondering, what, what, what does it look like to live the old life? What does it look like to live the new life? Paul will give us some very specific instructions beginning in chapter 4, verse 25 of the book of Ephesians. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Let the sun, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so that they have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And there's a structure in these four verses that the, the order shifts, but generally the pattern is this, not this, but this, and because of or so that. And, and so Paul is going to give us kind of these instructions. This is me using my own words here, but not falsehood but rather truth, because why? Because we are members of one another. Not anger, or at the very least, not sinning in your anger, but instead we look for a quick resolution. Why? Because so that we don't give a foothold, or so that we don't give any room for the devil. Don't steal, but instead pursue honest work. Why? So that you'll have something to share with the needy. Don't pursue evil talk. Instead, Speak what is useful for building up so that your words can give grace to those who hear. And so we see this pattern. But what's interesting about what Paul does, something that he does here that I think is very countercultural for us, is he puts the locus of the motivation has nothing to do with me as an individual or with you as an individual. See, typically when we teach, we put the individual at the locus of the motivation. So, so why shouldn't I lie? Or why shouldn't I steal? And we're going to say, well, because then people won't trust you. Or because then people won't like you. Or then people won't hire you. Or then people won't. And on and on the things go. And the motivation is always because of myself. But Paul here connects the motivation to something else. In fact, everything that Paul mentions here that he says is a good thing, a virtue, he connects it to a way that the community is blessed. The motivation is we want to be a part of healthy healing communities. And so we're going to act and behave in certain ways that contribute to that. All of the vices, the bad things that Paul mentions here are mentioned because they are destructive to community. Because it's hard to live in the midst of a community that embraces these sorts of behaviors or lifestyles. So really the impact on the community for Paul is the litmus test. Is this a good thing to do or is it a bad thing to do? And what is it that allows us to ask, is this a blessing to the community? What is it that undergirds that way of thinking? And it is humility. 
It is the ability to have a preoccupation with God's will and having a high regard for other people. And when we have that, we can live out these sorts of things. If we are not humble, we are not going to have the resources necessary to do what Paul is calling us to do. And so I want us to look at these four statements a little bit more closely. So the first statement is not falsehood, but truth, because we are members of one another. And once again, a reminder about how we tend to individualistically interpret these things. You ever heard the story about the boy who called wolf? That is a story that has a moral, and I don't know if this moral is what the moral in the States is, but at least in Canada, the moral story is, is if you cry out falsehood, the wolf's coming, then people are no longer going to trust your word. So the, the implication or the effect of me not speaking truth has a direct bearing on me. But from a community perspective, the boy who cried wolf, the danger for the community is now the community is not going to respond when a wolf is coming. When the wolf comes, guess what? He eats all your sheep and you lose everything. So we recognize here this, 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 this tendency we have towards saying, well, so what's, what's the benefit for me or what's the impact on me or what's the cost on me? And Paul, he says, the impact of you being a truth teller is about what happens to the other members? Because we are members of one another. That, that when I speak falsehood, the implication just isn't, just isn't for me. It's for the whole entire community. And that's important to Paul. Paul said in um, Ephesians uh, 2.19 that we are members of the household of God. In 5.20, he will remind us that we are members of his body. What kind of a community can you have when you can't trust? what people are saying to you. If you've ever watched the TV show Survivor, what happens is they take a group of people, they, they, they put them as almost teams, but then everybody's against each other because only one person can win a million dollars and everybody expects that you're going to lie and cheat and deceive your way through it. And so usually around the 30th day of them being in this context, they'll bring a loved one in, someone from home, someone a part of their family, and people just emotionally just fall apart. And the reason is because for 30 days, they have not been anywhere they could trust anything anyone was saying. And they experienced so much relief because now I'm with someone I can trust that they have my best interest at heart. And so Paul is, is envisioning a community for us where we can trust each other, where we can be sure that, that, that each other are speaking what is true and what is truthful. And then there is this, this recognition and so Paul is really encouraging us to ask the question, not with ourselves in the center, but with others in the center, to ask the question, how will my falsehoods or how will my truths impact others? And humility is what is necessary to create the space to say, how is it better for me to speak for your sake? When I am lying, I am most often doing what is best for my own sake. I'm trying to further my agenda, further my perspective, and yet Paul calls us rooted in humility to get outside of ourselves. A person with pride is not going to ask about how their words are going to impact you. A person being obsessed with low self-esteem isn't going to ask those questions. But a person who's created this hospitable space will say, how do my words impact everyone else that I'm around? Let's look at the second thing that Paul mentions. He says, not to pursue anger, but to deal with it quickly because we don't want to make room for or to give the devil a foothold. 
Usually we tend to understand anger as something that has an implication for myself. And does it? Does anger have a negative implication for myself? Absolutely. But once again, what Paul is talking about is, is, is he's speaking to a group of people. And what he's really saying is, hey, y'all, y'all don't get angry. Because there's something dangerous that happens in the midst of a community when anger is present. Anger is a toxin. It's not just going to impact you. Have you ever been around an angry person? Does that ever impact you? Absolutely. This week, my daughter Hannah was working at Chipotle, and one of the employees got sick while they were on the job. And you know what they had to do with every single thing that person touched that morning? They threw it out in the garbage. Because they didn't want that toxin to impact everyone else. And anger's the same way. When you are angry, you are not the only person who is dealing with that. The whole community becomes recipients of that toxin. And why would I care? That's what anger does, right? It turns you towards your self-interests. But what humility does is it makes me ask the question, does my anger positively impact God's kingdom agenda or the devil's purposes? And if I'm convinced and I'm, I'm obsessed with God's will, then I'm, I, I don't want to participate in any sort of anger, not even just for how it impacts me, but for how it impacts everyone else who has the not so great pleasure of being around me when I'm anger. So dealing with anger is a way to protect the community. People with pride, they don't ask that question. People with, with an obsessive low self-esteem, they don't ask the question. It's only the humble person will ask, how does my anger impact others? Third thing Paul points out here is he encourages us not to steal, but to work honestly so that you will have something to share with the needy. A key word here is this idea of share. It's based in the word to give. And so we work in order that we have something to give to others. I don't remember where I saw this, but in the last couple of years, I've come across for a freshman entering college. And the number one factor they're looking at for when they pick a major, anybody want to guess what that is? Money. Now, somebody may be trying to get the job that has the highest pay because they want to be able to share the most. That may be what's behind it. I'm guessing it's not. Sometimes when we look at our work, we say, what is the work that I would like the most, I would enjoy the most, that will pay me the most? And Paul, do you see how he's flipping that all upside down? And he's saying, find a job that you have something that you can share with the needy. Only a humble person can ask the question, how will my work better equip me to share with the needy? Is my work a kind of a work that's sharing something good and positive with others? Is the resources I'm getting from my work, is it something that I'm using for the sake of others? In order to follow this instruction, we have to get beyond ourselves. We have to look out at the community and ask about their needs. And Paul's fourth instruction is, is not to pursue evil talk, but only to use, speak in what is useful for building up, so that your words can give grace to those who hear. I'm not telling you anything you didn't know to hear that words can either be constructive or destructive, right? That the words can either build up or they can tear down. We can use our words in a very selfish way or we can use our words in a very selfless way. I mean, what does it look like to use your words in a selfish way? Use your words to, to make sure you win the argument. Use words to make sure you prove yourself right. Use your words to make other people feel bad. And what Paul is saying is, in the community of believers, this is not how we want to use our words. Words can give grace. And humble people focus on what they can give 
to others. So my words are not to be used for my own purposes, for my own advancement, for my own benefit, but my words are to be used for your sake. What are the best words I can speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ? And I will speak those words to build them up. And I will speak those words that they can receive grace. Paul will talk about these gifts that people receive from Christ. And each of those gifts was given for the specific purpose of what? To build up the body. That is not something that is reserved for certain people who have certain positions or offices in the church. Building up the body is for anyone who has the ability to speak. So if you're under two years old, I'll give you a pass. Everyone over two years old, this is God's instruction for you. But it requires some internal space to get outside of yourself and say, how do my words affect other people? Have you ever carelessly used your words in a way that hurts someone and later they let you know and you didn't even realize because you were so obsessed with what was happening within you? Now, Paul has given us these four motivations But in verse 30, Paul is going to anchor all of this in one motivation that applies to all four things. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. How we act in the midst of the body of believers can have one of two impacts on the Holy Spirit. One is celebration. The Holy Spirit can celebrate. We talked in Ephesians 2 is about unity and about the importance of pursuing unity, about the importance of being a part of a, a, a body of redemptive people. And when the Holy Spirit sees us in unity, working together based in humility, there is celebration on the part of the Holy Spirit. But there's a second possible reaction of the Holy Spirit to our actions in the community, and that is that things can grieve, can make sad the spirit of God. When we speak falsehood, when we stew in our anger, when we steal, when we practice evil talk, we need to realize God grieves over the destruction we're bringing to the people of God. And it's just so important for us to realize Paul is not saying, don't do these things because it's going to hurt you as a person, though it's true. Paul's not motivating us based on how it's going to impact you. He's motivating you, number one, based on how it's going to impact the people around you and how it's going to impact the Holy Spirit of God. That's why we've given humility this definition, a preoccupation with God's will that will motivate you to have a high regard for others. Don't we want to be a people that cause the Holy Spirit celebration in how we act and behave and treat one another? Humility requires me to put my own wants and needs aside. Paul, who continues to build up this aspect and the importance of our speech, will say in chapter 4, verse 31, Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And if we've been paying attention, I don't think it's going to take me very long to say, do you see the focus on others here? If you hear the word one another, one another, Paul's concern is for others and that my behavior will impact them, that I step outside of myself long enough to say, how does my behavior impact others? And then Paul offers these final words that, that again are another motivating factor for us in verses one and two of chapter five. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are the beloved children of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, we're reminded that we have been adopted. So, so, so as God's children, we need to have attributes that people say, hey, you look an awful lot like your dad. And, and what that is grounded in and, and what that is, is, is really rooted in is the fact that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And once again, as, as we begin to think about, so what does humility look like? How do I see it? How is it practiced? Guess where Paul points once again? He points to Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. In the Gospels, that is the language that is used often about Jesus being handed over or about Jesus giving himself over to the cross. So the direct reference in that word is to the cross of Christ. I mean, why am I going to do these things? I mean, why would I care if my speech impacts you, if my anger impacts you? Why would I care about any of that? And Paul's going to say, look at the cross and the Savior who gave himself up for you. And that will provide you with all that you need to serve and to love others. Jesus is an illustration, an example of a preoccupation with God's will that motivates us to have a high regard for others. And so the question is, what kind of a spiritual house are you living in? Are, are you living in a house that's got room for you, room for your dreams and room for your plans and room for your agendas? And anytime relationally someone's around you, they realize there's just no room for me. Remember what they used to say in the old Westerns? This town ain't big enough for the two of us. Some people's pride is just so big, you're just like, there's nowhere here for me. Or maybe you're, you're, you're so fixated on, I have to do something to impress people. I got to find a way to make people love me by, by doing this or by doing that. Or maybe your spiritual house is such already that you are able to say, my life is for you. Make yourself at home. Share what you need to share. Be what you need to be so that we can collectively work towards God's pleasure and God's purposes. And the root of all of this is to do what Christ did. He gave himself up. We, we have a baptistry in this church, and the baptistry functions as that place where I say, I'm giving myself up. I'm, I'm moving out of the center of my life. I'm going to make God's will the very center of my life. And when we die in the waters of baptism, we're raised anew. And the life that we live, we're no longer driven by our own ego and our own reasons and our own passions and our own dreams and our own desires, but we're now driven by a desire that God might receive the glory by the high regard we have for others. Um, so in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. When we sing that song, if, if, if you are ready to make that step in your faith journey, uh, come and find me in the back. Uh, if life has been challenging and difficult, you want somebody to pray with you, I'd encourage you to also find someone um, during the, the song that we're singing in just a moment. But I want to offer a word of blessing, and then we'll sing this song together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And then this is the blessing that Paul offers to the church in Corinth, a blessing that I think is an encouragement as we go into the world, that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to respond in any way, I encourage you to come meet us in the back while we stand and sing this next song together.